Well, this is our second Sunday of Advent, and uh, Christmas is around the corner. We have some fun events that we've already talked about, the madrigal coming up, there's caroling uh, Saturday night, um, and we've had Christmas boxes that we've uh, prepared to send to kids around the world. We, in the lobby, we have uh, some, uh, uh, a little box that we can uh, collect some things for the food pantry. Hope you'll bring things for that, and, and I encourage you to be a part of all these activities. However, um, the most important thing is not all of these the most important thing is that we would prepare our hearts for Christ. Advent, uh, as I've mentioned before, is about three comings. It is about uh, celebrating the coming of Christ in a manger. Uh, it's about the future coming. that We anticipate that Jesus will return, and when he does, it will be glorious, and it will be amazing, and that, um, that we have a bright hope for the future. And then the, the third one is that daily uh, we want to prepare our hearts for Jesus coming and entering and, and doing uh, a work in us. And so as we do that, and as we uh, attempt to focus our hearts and eyes on, on this idea of Advent, um, we don't want to miss some things. We don't want to miss a sense of anticipation or an opportunity to grow closer to Christ or an occasion to enlarge our hearts or a chance to recalibrate the compass, our internal compass towards heaven. And so to help us with this, uh, this task at hand, we want to grow closer to Christ and, and, um, and seek after him. We have been going through this series. We're starting the series through the eyes of Isaiah. So we're looking through the eyes of an Old Testament prophet who lived 700 some odd years before the time of Christ. And yet there are so many different prophecies and predictions and, and glimpses of uh, this hope that Isaiah had. He looked forward to this with anticipation, and I, I hope that we will as well. So um, we're looking at these chapters of Isaiah 6 and 7 this morning, and as we're doing so, we want to look through Isaiah's faith-filled eyes to his call, his commission, and his Christ. So that's Isaiah's call, Isaiah's commission, and Christ in Isaiah. And so we're going to jump right in, and, uh, and chapter 6 of Isaiah begins with the words, in the, in the, um, in the year that King Uzziah died. And without uh, any more information, that may seem meaningless um, to us. What does it mean, uh, and is it important that this um, vision took place in the year that King Uzziah died? And by the way, Uzziah and Scripture, uh, Uzziah and Azariah are the same Person, different names for the same person. So if we um, mention one, it, it, it's they're one and the same. Now, Uzziah, also known as Azariah, was 16 when he became king of Judah. He reigned for 52 years. Is that a long time? That, that's a long time to be king. Uh, the first 24, he was co-regent with his father Amaziah. And just a few years before Isaiah's commission, Jeroboam II of Israel died. Now, Jeroboam had extended, as a Jeroboam, none of the kings of Israel were declared to be good kings, but Jeroboam was politically, uh, he did very well, and God did bless him with extending the borders of Israel past that of any other king. It, it, it came to their maximum fulfillment under the reign of Jeroboam too, who also reigned a long time. So during this time uh, of Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam of Israel, there was peace between the two nations which wasn't always the case. There was economic prosperity. And in Judah, 
um, both Uzziah and his father were declared to be good kings, morally upright kings. And so there was a sense of economic and political and even moral prosperity in the nation of Judah for a time. But after Jeroboam died, uh, Israel in the north experienced a tumultuous uh, change. Uh, it seemed that king after king would assassinate each other, and so there was king after king, there was assassination after assassination, and the nation of Israel became destabilized. And in Judah, uh, there was King Jotham and then Ch King Ahaz, and King Ahaz was not a good king. And so there was a decline, a moral and economic decline that took place in the nation of Judah. Now, far up in the northeast, um, this uh, nation of Assyria's power was increasing. And, uh, and it was growing as, as a nation, and they were gobbling up other kingdoms. Um, it, you might also find it interesting that uh, there, right around this time, a new nation was being established far to the west. You might have heard of it. It is the nation of Rome. And so um, I know this is a lot to take into, and what I'm reading to you or explaining to you is not just a history lesson. It's the sort of the soil that we're working in this morning. It is, um, it's the context of which Isaiah received his calling. So if we, if we imagine this were taking place in America, imagine a ruler or a president who had been here a long time, things were stable under that president, and, um, and there was economic and political prosperity, that, uh, that America actually had a moral compass during that time, and things seemed to be going well. And then all of a sudden, um, whoever that leader was is gone, and there seemed to be um, the, the, the following leaders don't have that same vision, and they don't have that same moral compass. And the nation starts declining in many different ways, and actually, we're kind of even wondering and waiting for the pending uh, judgment that we might receive from God because of the direction that we're heading. That is what Isaiah's experience was as he received his vision. And so what did Isaiah see? And Isaiah 6 is one of the most striking passages. Um, he had a vision of God on the throne with bright, fiery attendants around him calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And such was the power of their voices that the, the doors and the thresholds and, the, and the, the, whole, the whole place was shaking with the power that was, that, um, of them declaring God's holiness. The temple was full of smoke. Now, seraphim are spiritual beings, attendants of the Lord. This is the only place in Scripture where, um, that refers to seraphim. The grandeur of the setting, the raw power displayed, the seraphim themselves were nothing compared to the splendor of the king. So there's all this taking place here. And then when it describes God himself, it says, on God's robe, he's got a long robe coming down, and at the very bottom, there's a hem. And the hem of that robe fills the temple with glory. That greater than all these things is the magnificent presence of God himself. It's amazing. J.B. Phillips once wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. 
And I'm quite certain that's true of us. Our God is too small. We can't conceive of how large and magnificent and glorious God himself is. But the words of the seraphim, although words of worship, were also, for Isaiah, words of disclosure, understanding who God is. God is, he has aseity, that is, he exists independently of any of us. He's not contingent upon us in any way. He's not dependent upon us. The word holy speaks of his divine perfection. He's separated from his creation. We need God, but he does not need us. And Edward J. Young noted that the word holy also includes an ethical element, the thought of complete freedom and separation from what is sinful. God is the standard for what is good and right. So he's separate from his creation. He's not in every rock and tree in, in, uh, in some sort of way, but he's separate. He does not need his creation, but he loves his creation. And he is a standard for what is good and right. In the past, some have wondered, well, why was the word holy, holy, holy spoken three times? And some in the ancient answer would say uh, it's because of the Trinity. It's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And that may or may not be, but the emphasis for sure here is God's holiness and his glory. And so we say, well, what is God's glory? And, uh, and here it's God's declarative glory. And here's how it works. As God's attributes are made known, he is glorified. As we understand, as, cre- as creation understands more of who God is, there is this revelation of glory. And so when Moses asked to see God's glory, God um, told Moses that he couldn't handle the fullness of his glory. Moses declared, now show me your glory. He wanted to see that revelation of who God is. And God said, well, I can show you some of who I am, but if I were to give you a complete revelation of who I am, you could not survive it. And so, God told Moses, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. So the glory of God, can you imagine seeing this vision? Can you imagine like all of a sudden you're in the throne of God, you see all this. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Would, would you want that? I mean, would, would, we want it, would we want to be there and experience that? And, and you know, I, I would think that uh, the overwhelming majesty and holiness and power would make us want that. Uh, Would we have the guts to ask for that? And then if it was shown to us, what would we do? How would we respond? Well, when Isaiah saw God in his glory, he cried out, Woe to me! I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. If we had a close encounter with God in this sort of way, we might not respond with joy and awe and and just, you know, it it might not be the warm fuzzies that we're getting because that's not what happened with Isaiah. Isaiah was a a man who was seeking after God. He would consider himself uh, a worshiper of God. And yet, he, his immediate response is like, wow, I mean, this is, this is amazing. It's overwhelming. It's powerful. I mean, God's holiness, his glory, and I don't belong here. There's something wrong with me. My lips are unclean. I, my heart is unclean. My, uh, you know, my, the people I live among are unclean. And I'm about to be obliterated, undone, unmade. 
I can't stand here in this very place. And it's because holiness and unholiness are incompatible. Um, the children bring in their dirty, grubby items in the house, and the first thing mom wants to do is wash them because we know that those things are going to make other things dirty because things that are unclean and things that are clean are not compatible, just as holiness and unholiness are not compatible. And so what is unholy must be burned away when confronted with the presence of the living God. So Isaiah's response actually wasn't joy, but it was confession. He was, and he wasn't even asking for anything. He, was, he wasn't anticipating anything could save him from the situation. He just said, woe to me, I'm unruined. I'm, I'm ruined, I'm undone, I'm, you know, I'm in big trouble here. There's nothing I can do to make myself presentable to the king on the throne. And Dallas Willard uh, notes that when Isaiah was confronted with what his life was versus what it should be, he burned to be other. People who have undergone such repentance can readily understand the readiness of evil in us all. And Isaiah longed to be holy, but he was not. So this is it. We have God and we have Isaiah. And Isaiah responded with repentance. He said, I, I don't want to be this way. I want to be different than I am. I have no means to do that, but I want to be wholly other than I am. And so... Let me ask, have you ever been confronted with the enormity of your sin? Have you ever been, had, a, had a situation where you realize, oh my gosh, I have completely blown this and there is nothing I can do to undo my past mistake. I can't fix it. It's not fixable. It's like when you get in a car wreck. You can't just undo what happened five minutes before. Have you ever done anything that you consider unforgivable or irredeemable? Isaiah was like a man who had all of his transgressions laid out in front of him and then said, what, what am I going to do? Isaiah sees his situation as hopeless. He doesn't even bother to asking for cleansing or deliverance, but here he under, underestimates the grace of God. So then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs in the altar, when he had touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And you say, Well, what's the coal in the altar? Anybody know? There are a lot of um, theologians and scholars who've said, Well, what's the coal from the altar? And, uh, and consensus seems to be that uh, it, it, it might have come from the incense altar. There are different altars. Uh, the one that all the smoke comes up from, there's these hot rocks that makes the incense go up, and, and that could possibly be the case. And another, uh, another scholar said, well, you know, maybe it could be a, a piece of burning lamb's flesh from that other altar, the, for the altar of sacrifice, because we're referring to atonement here, and atonement is more of the altar of sacrifice. Um, but most theologians agree that the particular altar is not as important to the scene as the idea of Isaiah's lips being atoned for. So the coal comes up to Isaiah's lips, and all that is bad and wrong is cauterized and purified from Isaiah's lips. And so um, 
as we're trying to discern this, we realize over the whole scope of the 66 books of Isaiah, it's, it's a book full of teasers. And uh, so God's judgment is spelled out in detail. Um, his grace and mercy are clear, that the images used to convey the means of his grace are buried. The branch, the shoot, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and here a coal from the altar. But what we see um, consistently in the book of Isaiah is God's judgment spelled out in detail, what's going to happen, uh, why it's going to happen, what the problems were, what the sins were, and then we see these little teasers of how it's going to be taken care of, and it all seems to point to a coming Messiah, a coming Christ that, uh, that God is going to use to make things right. And so um, now that Isaiah's lips are cauterized from their uncleanness, they're purified, they're made acceptable to God, um, Isaiah hears a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go out for us? And can't we imagine Isaiah's excitement? I mean, it is, his guilt is taken away, his sin is atoned for, he can be in, presence, in the presence of the living God without fear, because something has taken place significantly, and he's overjoyed. And God says, whom shall I send? I have a mission coming up. And Isaiah's kind of like, me, me, I'll go. And, uh, and I, I can just imagine his excitement. And then I'm going to read what happens in the King James Version. It's kind of a fun one. Um, and he said, so this is God saying, go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy. And shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Anybody want to sign up for that? What a terrible ministry. Like, you know, all of a sudden he's, he's purified, he's ready to go, his lips have been, um, have been purified, he, you know, he's, he's all ready for this great ministry. Okay, what is it, God? Go talk to these people who aren't going to listen to you. They're not going to see what you see. Their hearts are going to be fat. There's so much fat around their hearts, they can't respond. They're going to have hardened hearts. And go share with them the words that I've given you. And I don't know what I would say if I were given a ministry like that, but Isaiah said, for how long? How long is this going to take place? And here's what God says, just to encourage him. Until the cities lie ruined without inhabitant, and until the houses are left deserted, the fields are ruined and ravaged, the Lord has sent everyone far away, the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. So here you go, Isaiah. Declare my words to people that aren't going to listen. Show them stuff they're just not going to perceive or understand or even care about. Their hearts are fat. Go do this. This is your ministry. And where is hope in all this? The hope is going to come, it's a holy seed that's going to come from the stump after ever, consider this a forest, the whole forest has been cut down, everything's been laid bare, 
And the only hope you have is the seed and the stump. Now, something I want to point out here, it's super important for us to understand because it's tied in with this idea of, um, of having eyes but not seeing, having ears but not hearing, having a heart but it doesn't respond. And that is a direct shot at the idols that people were worshiping in that day. People worshiped idols that could not see or hear. An idol has no heart. And those who worship will become like them. Isaiah speaks of a carpenter in Isaiah 44, verses 13 through 17, who measures a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it into human form and um, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. And he cut the wood, using some to warm himself and bake bread, and with the rest of it, he fashions a god and worships it. And he makes an idol and bows down to it. Half the word he burns with the fire. Uh, over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat. He eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. See the fire. And with the rest he makes a god, his idol, and he bows down to it and worships and prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. An idol can't see, it can't hear, it has no heart. And those who worship idols will become like them. Do we have any idol worshipers here? Are any of us idol worshipers? Nobody's raising their hands. Um, Let me define an idol. An idol is anything that takes the place of God. Do any of us have anything in our lives that takes the place of God? We might. We might have some idols in there. It might be our work, our relationships. It might be sports. It might be our kids' activities. What do we have in our lives that is taking the place of God? The psalmist said in Psalm 115, 4 through 8, Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, noses that cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So if we have an idol, and it is our God, the promise in Scripture is we will become like that idol. We will increasingly move towards whatever vision we have of God, whether it is the true God or an idol that has taken the place of God. And so this is um, Isaiah's ministry, is he's going to speak to people who have fallen so thoroughly into idolatry that they cannot respond to the the living God. Now, I want to edge us into uh, chapter 7 and take a look at what happens at the end of this. This is Isaiah's ministry, and we're going to cruise through it fairly fairly quickly. But what happens after this in chapter 7 is um, Isaiah confronts King Ahaz. Now, um, a word about King Ahaz. So we've we've had uh, King Uzziah, who was a good, uh, good king, and his son Jotham was, I think, also a good king. But when we get to Ahaz, he's not a good dude. He's actually... He's a, he's a bad king. And in 2 Kings 16, 1 through 4, it says, In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Remaliah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 16 years. 
but he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices, burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Bad king. And so we have this bad king Ahaz and the decline. Remember I said that we're declining in Judah right now. And in the midst of that, uh, there's, there's a really tumultuous time in Israel. And Israel's then king uh, aligned himself with uh, the king of Aram. And they decided, we're going to take over Judah and install a puppet king. And so these two nations decided, hey, let's work together. We're going to knock out Judah. And so bad king Ahaz is quaking with fear. And so are all the rest of the Israelites. They are, and, and the, incidentally, the word shaking in this is the same word used for shaking in the temple. So they are shaking with fear over the potential takeover here, uh, just as there was shaking going on in the temple. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go take your son, Shirjashub, and meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct in the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field and say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood because the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramaliah. And then he just promises that, uh, that these guys aren't going to stand. Within 65 years, they're not even going to be a nation that they're going to go downhill, and that if Ahaz would only trust in the Lord, that God will spare him from this current situation. Ahaz should humble himself before the Lord, trust in him, and he'll be um, delivered from his, um, this immediate threat, which is going to be no threat eventually because uh, these will be, no longer be a nation. Um, the Lord said, as it will not take place, it will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, the head of Damascus only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. And he ends it, he says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Now, if you think about Isaiah's vision of God in the throne room, and the glory of the king of kings, the majesty, the one who is not contingent upon anyone else, the one who has complete power, the one that the seraphims are dwarfed by, even though they're shaking the doorposts with their words, the, the holy one, the glorious one, as his attributes are, are, are revealed to us, the, the whole world's filled with glory. And then we compare him to these two kings of small nations that are about to attack Judah. And the king of kings says, don't worry about them. Trust me. Now, if we really had a vision of who God was, and he said, don't worry about them. Trust me. What would we do? It's all dependent upon who we believe God is. But Ahab said, um, or it, uh, Isaiah said, ask the Lord for a sign. Ahab said, I won't do it. I won't put the Lord to a test. And Isaiah said, here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. and will call him Emmanuel. At this time, 
No doubt there was a child born that was a, an immediate sign and fulfillment of what was taking place there. But what Isaiah was also pointing to is something that was going to take place far in the future. The one that Isaiah 53 talked about, the suffering servant, the, the stump or the shoot coming out of the stump of Jesse, that future Messiah. King Ahaz, you're worried about this current situation. The king of kings can help you through this if you only trust in him, but you should be looking at the long road. You should be looking at, at the eternal. And the Lord himself will give you a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. Where else do those words show up? In the New Testament, book of, anybody? You guys still awake? Matthew, the book of Matthew. They show up in the book of Matthew referring to Jesus. And so what we see here is that, look, the, the political, economic, moral situation here is an absolute mess, and God says, Jesus. What, is, what my solution for this whole mess is, is a coming Messiah, a coming Christ, one who is going to make things right, one who's going to be born in humble circumstances and yet come back and be glorious. And if you would only put your faith in me, things can be different. So as we wrap this up and try to look at it with our own eyes, okay, what, what makes sense here? I mean, what is in between us and God of, of, of seeing God more clearly, of responding to him better, of being able to see him and hear him and have our hearts respond and not be fat? The only thing in between us and God, the keeping us from him, is this idea of idolatry. The idea that there's something replacing God in our lives, something that is keeping us from him. And we ought to, as good Christians, find out what that is, maybe write it down and kill it. Because it's interfering with our relationship with the Lord. Do we want to have eyes that are heavy like we're falling asleep and ears that they can't seem to hear anything and, and hearts that are fat and insulated from anything God might say or be calling us to do? Or do we want to be like Isaiah and say, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. Now, I, I've got to confess, if we say, here I am, send me, God might call us to do something we don't want to do and go somewhere we don't want to go, but he will give us a promise that in the end, it will be entirely worth it. That seems to be how it works in Christian ministry. If God is calling you to do something, first of all, he wants you to be purified. He's going to take that coal from the, the altar whose name is Jesus. You're going to be purified. You'll say, send me, and then God will give you the instructions. And you might be scared or nervous or think, you know, oh gosh, I don't know that I like this ministry. I shouldn't have signed up for it. But you can trust him in it. And that's what faith is about. It's about trust. It's about unplugging ourselves from whatever is not God and plugging ourselves into God himself. Faith is trusting God. In, uh, if you want to go forward one, um, we, we gave this definition of hope, that hope is the confident, faithful expectation of what God will do in the future. So hope is sort of like future faith. So we think about hope in terms of Faith and what will happen next. And if we go to the next one here, we have the definition in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the confidence 
in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So, I guess the question to leave ourselves with here is, where is our confidence? Where is our hope? Where is our faith? Where is our assurance? I know that we're all coming from a different place in this, and perhaps uh, for some of us, this might be a time to put our faith in Jesus for the first time. To say, you know, um, I want... I want to capture a vision for who God is and seeing that vision of who God is and realizing that I don't quite measure up. I don't, if there's something that doesn't belong here, it's me. But Jesus makes it possible for me to be in God's presence. I want that. I want to give myself to Jesus. Maybe that is your next step of faith. It might be that you've never been baptized as a Christian and, and baptism is, is a form of obedience as a Christian. It might be that you've never given at all to the church or, or to help another brother or sister out in need. And maybe it's a financial step of faith that God's calling you to do. Or it might be that God's calling you to forgive somebody you have not forgiven and not been willing to go there with because it's too painful, too hard, and just seems like a difficult situation. Or it might be that God is calling you to go somewhere, maybe across the street to talk to a neighbor or maybe across the world. But I think that each one of us should think, okay, Here's where it is. What is my next step of faith that God is calling me to do? Cleanse my lips. Here I am. Send me. Because the promise in Scripture is if you do not stand by faith, you will not stand at all. And our faith and our hope are in Jesus Christ. Please bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. We thank you for the object of our faith, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, Jesus, who has forgiven our sins, who has atoned for our sin, who gives, offers us new life, and that if there's a stump in our lives, the shoot of Jesus can grow. Lord, we pray that you'd cast down idolatry, things that are taking our attention from you, whatever those might be, that you will be first, that you'll be seated on the throne, and God, I pray that you give each of us a vision of who you are that would take our breath away. In the name of Jesus, amen.